Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. In his keynote address to the 2014 Australasian Aid and International Development Policy Workshop, Roger Vidal provided an updated answer to the question, does foreign aid really work? Be sure to read his discussion paper and blog post on this topic at devpolicy.org. So now, uh, without any further ado, I can go straight uh, to introducing uh, to our uh, keynote speaker. We just had our opening speaker. We've now got our first keynote speaker, uh, Roger Riddell. And I'm going to set an example for all uh, subsequent chairs by keeping my introduction of Roger very short. I'll simply say he has a lifetime uh, of experience of working in and thinking about aid. Uh, He wrote the book in 2008, Does Aid Really Work?, which I use, uh, have used for the last five years as a textbook in my aid course here at Crawford. And his lecture today is based on a paper that he's specially and just now written uh, for us, uh, which updates uh, his thinking from that 2008 book on this uh, really uh, fundamental but nearly always uh, inadequately addressed question. Uh, So, Roger, uh, we're a little bit behind time, but uh, I know you're going to stick to your 40 minutes, and that will still leave us uh, a little bit of time for questions. So please welcome Roger Riddell. Thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, I'm delighted to be here to participate in this first international development workshop, and very honoured to have been asked to be the first keynote speaker. As others have indicated, I've been working on aid and development issues for more years than I would like to count. And I will approach my talk today in the way that I have written about aid, which I call as a critical friend. In approaching aid like this, I have inevitably drawn scorn and comment from both the detractors and the supporters of aid, but I battle on. Now, my presentation, as Stephen indicated, is based on a longer paper which will be available to those uh, uh, after the conference, well, indeed, uh, hopefully up tomorrow. The subject is clearly vast, and I won't be able to discuss all the issues now that are in the paper. There are issues like aid and corruption, some issues on inequality which have also already been raised uh, that are treated more substantially in the paper. Now the title of my talk is beguilingly simple, Does Foreign Aid Really Work? Some might say that the fact that we're still asking this most basic question 60 years since official aid started in the 1940s is an indication of how little we seem to know about aid's impact and influence. My own view is that while it is true that robust and reliable information on AIDS impact certainly remains a significant problem, there are two other reasons why this question continues to be asked. The first is that AID has been constantly changing. It has been provided in different forms to address a succession of different problems or to fill different perceived gaps seen as critical at particular points of time. In the 1950s, it was physical infrastructure and technical skills. In the 70s, meeting basic needs. In the 90s, governance, human rights and development. And today, with the Millennium Development Goals, in some respects, we've returned to some of the critical debates of the 1970s. 
The second reason why we're still asking whether aid works is that the question, does aid work, has been understood differently at different periods of time. Broadly speaking, there are three ways that the question has been interpreted. Firstly, 30 years ago, when most people asked whether aid worked, they principally wanted to know if different aid projects met their immediate objectives. Were the schools that aid funded actually built, the children immunised, the roads built, and the teachers trained? We in the professional aid world need to remind ourselves that today many people remain happy with answers to that question. However, secondly, over the last few decades, in asking the question, does aid work, most people have wanted, to answer, wanted answers to broader and more general key questions of whether aid makes an overall and lasting difference to the lives and well-being of poor people focusing beyond the individual projects, and whether aid makes a significant difference to recipient countries' growth and development. But today, a significant and growing number of people have begun to raise an even more challenging question, not whether aid projects achieve their immediate objectives, nor whether aid has historically made a tangible and lasting difference to poor people and a significant difference to ridding the world of poverty, but whether poor economies would be better off without the sort of aid that we are now providing. For years, AIDS critics have argued that poverty falls faster and economic growth and development rises more rapidly without aid than with it, and on this basis, they have judged that aid has not worked. Today, it's not only AIDS critics, but some AIDS scholars and officials within donor agencies who are viewing aid from this sort of perspective. One way this third question is now being approached is by looking more closely at the systemic and long-term effects of donors providing aid focused increasingly on addressing immediate short-term problems. More specifically, does the way aid is currently provided, with more and more donors funding more and more projects aimed at maximizing immediate benefits, expanded school places, immunization programs, greater access to clean water, more bed nets, more people with antiretroviral drugs, does all this result in holding back the long-term development prospects of recipient economies by failing to address the underlying development problems or even by actually creating new obstacles? If the answer is yes, then in this sense, aid could be said not to be working. Which of these questions is the right one to ask? My own view is that they all are all important in coming to a judgment about aid. The strongest case for aid will be made if all three can be answered affirmatively. If aid projects achieve their immediate objectives and can be sustained, if aid contributes to an aggregate fall in poverty levels and continues to facilitate 
growth and sustained development. And thus, if aid giving, rather than adding to the systemic problems which constrain long-term development, more specifically and directly help to reduce them. Now, many of you may be surprised that for the first 30 years of official aid giving, no one really bothered much about this question that I'm addressing today, does aid work? This is because trying to help address the needs and solving the most pressing problems of poor countries was seen as a sufficient justification in itself for providing aid. In its 25-year review of the official aid system published in 1985, the OECD DAC was confident enough of general support for official aid that it was able to say boldly, the most troubling aspect and the most troubling shortcoming of development aid has been its limited effectiveness in reducing extreme poverty. Today, in sharp contrast, demonstrating that aid does have a positive impact is widely seen as providing the ground for determining whether it should be provided or not. Whether this is to achieve a donor's political goals or its development objectives, the main focus of my talk here today. Now, before I look at some of the evidence to try and answer each of these three questions from these different perspectives, I want first to say a word or two about emergency or humanitarian aid. Why? Because the most vehement critics of aid, such as Peter Bauer in the 1970s and Dambiso more recently, have gone out of their way to say that their criticisms of aid are not aimed at emergency aid, which at least in some forms they appear to support, even to support the expansion. Is this because emergency aid works and development aid doesn't? Seemingly not, because as discussed in more detail in my paper, while the information we have of the impact of humanitarian aid still remains poor, the evidence we do have indicates a range of serious problems, some leading to detrimental effects. In spite of these problems, and even evidence of emergency aid going astray, corrupt purposes, public support for emergency aid remains strong when the next media emergency hits. <coughs> and the media tends to support the giving of aid for the next big emergency. Additionally, the distinct, distinction still made between emergency aid on the one hand and development aid on the other is nowhere near as clear-cut today as it was. Increasingly, in recent years, a growing amount of emergency aid has been used not to save lives, nor respond to the immediate aftermaths of a disaster, but to help to rebuild the lives and restore the livelihoods of those affected by emergencies, doing many of the things that development aid is also doing. At the same time, billions of dollars of development aid is now regularly channeled into immediate life-saving initiatives, providing clean water through mass immunizations, supplying bed nets, and distributing antiretroviral drugs. Thus, in short, the public remains a strong supporter of emergency aid, 
when there is quite firm evidence to su suggest significant impact problems, and critics of development aid praise emergency aid for saving lives when a growing amount of development aid is doing precisely that. So with that little discourse into emergency aid and whether it works, I now want to turn to the impact of development aid. Development aid is still predominantly provided in the form of discrete projects, in spite of a steady expansion in the number of projects assessed and an increase in an analytic rigor, most projects are still not rigorously evaluated. And only a small proportion of projects are the focus of in-depth evaluation, probably less than 1%. Even today, few agencies and no NGOs undertake impact assessments in any systematic way, presenting their findings and putting them on their websites. So against this background, what is the evidence of aid impact? The most common way of judging success is by looking at whether aid projects achieve their immediate objectives. New schools, clinics, boreholes and roads built, more children in school, more teachers trained. Most donors record success rates in terms of this criterion in excess of 75% of their individual projects. Even allowing for an upward bias in, this in these results, because many, if not, are based on internal assessments, the results indicate that most projects clearly work, and the reported rate of success of projects across the leading agencies has continued to improve over the last three decades when the information has been provided. What is more, these overwhelming positive results are broadly, not always, but broadly confirmed by those independent assessments and evaluations. At one level, this is an important and positive finding, and there are, if you look through the literature, some truly amazing individual success stories as the global eradication of smallpox, which aid played a crucial part in achieving, demonstrates. Some, as the minister indicated, some small projects or small NGOs equally have impressive results. There have, of course, been failures. Importantly, some types of aid have been less successful than others, transport projects in many countries and agricultural aid projects in Africa being two examples of where those high success rates have not, uh, not been shown to be true. Additionally, immediate project success, the most common uh, focus for these studies doesn't necessarily mean permanent success and mid-2000s data suggests that when looked at over time, project success rate could well fall from that 75% to about a 60% uh, uh, level, though most evidence suggests a rising proportion of projects achieving positive scores in relation to sustainability indicating some positive learning. A major component of aid is what is called technical assistance, TA. Assessments of the impact of these forms of aid suggest that in spite of most TA successfully filling knowledge gap and successfully training local personnel, such aid has generally not been at all successful in achieving sustainable capacity development, including the retention of high-level skills and the strengthening of public institutions. 
Beyond Discrete Projects Program Aid is today a major aid channel. Most assessments of sectoral support, including sector-wide approaches or swaps, have focused on the overall performance of aid given by particular donors or groups rather than its overall impact. Those that have attempted an overall assessment have suggested that these new aid modalities have usually worked reasonably effectively, especially after some teething problems, resulting in both a significant extension of the activities as well as greater ability to manage funds and more complex programs. Assessments of the impact of budget support as an aid modality have been mixed. The earliest large and influential cross-study, though reluctant to make an overall judgment in terms of outcomes, reported more successes and failures. A number of uh, subsequent studies, recent one in Tanzania, have been very much more positive, in spite of which there has been a fall-off in the share of aid channeled to budget support in recent years. Some people are quite happy to look at aid projects, and if the majority and the new aid modalities, and if the majority achieve their near-term objectives, conclude that aid works. However, as I've indicated, more people want to dig deeper and to ask uh, more systemic questions. There's been a long tradition of academic studies which have analyzed the aggregate relationships between official aid and economic growth, and this continues to this day. Almost as much ink has been spilt in discussing the methods these studies used as on their findings. As discussed in my paper, most recent studies have suggested that aid has made a positive contribution to growth, though perhaps the most interesting finding coming up is that the impact of aid on growth is comparatively small. A sustained contribution of aid of about 10% of gross domestic product raises GDP levels by only about 1%. For many today, and we've heard it from the Minister's speech, the key question that needs to be answered is the overall contribution of aid to poverty reduction. The aid-poverty relationship is particularly important because of the MDGs. Now, far fewer studies have been conducted which examine the aggregate relationship across countries between aid and poverty reduction compared with the aid and growth studies. However, from a small base, almost all have suggested that aid does work in helping to reduce the numbers living in poverty, though a quite common finding is that aid has been far less successful in reaching and assisting the poorest and the most marginalised. Analysing the impact of aid on the MDGs remains a huge challenge because of methodological and data problems. In March 2007, the director of the UN Statistical Division responsible for monitoring the MDGs acknowledged the seriousness of these problems when he admitted that only 17 out of 163 developing countries, only 17 out of 163, had trend data to assess progress for less than half the MDG indicators. All else was effectively based on guesswork. Against this backdrop of uncertainty, as well as the lack of conceptual clarity of precisely what some targets are, 
has aid helped to achieve the MDGs and further reduce poverty? A number of studies have looked at this. The authors of one major study said that as there was insufficient evidence to enable them to say whether the MDGs had contributed to poverty reduction, they were even more reluctant to draw firm conclusions about the role aid had played in helping to achieve the MDGs, suggesting at the end of their study merely that aid may have had some role in improving outcomes. A rather lame conclusion. (laughs) Equally, while poverty levels certainly fell faster in the most recent 10 years compared to earlier periods, a time when aid levels were rising, the, the authors warned against necessarily attributing this fall to the increased aid provided. To help shed light on its overall impact, for more than two decades, donors have also conducted or commissioned numerous country studies on aid impact. However, these studies have predominantly been assessments of the impact of their own aid interventions at the countrywide level, and not of all aid. What is more, to this day, individual bilateral donors in particular are still unable to produce robust and unambiguous evidence to document the direct contribution their aid is making to aggregate growth and poverty reduction, still less of all aid provided. A common thread continuing, running through the most rigorous of these country evaluations continues to be the reluctance of those doing the studies to be drawn into making firm conclusions about the direct link between aid provided and the wider outcomes. Two reasons are commonly given. First, the lack of information and hard data upon which to track the narrow impact of the aid provided and also knowledge that a range of other factors will be influencing outcomes at the sectoral and national level of which aid is only one. Surprisingly, exceptionally few studies of the overall impact of all aid to particular countries have been undertaken or indeed commissioned, either by all donors or by leading donors. I have a a note in my paper about an initiative which was discussed about 10 years ago, but which came to nothing. A number of studies have been undertaken by individual donors, such as the Australian uh, uh, studies of PNG, which many I know in the room are familiar with, and I discuss these briefly in my paper. In terms of the overall impact, the conclusions emerging from these country studies are mixed. In most countries, aid is judged to have had a positive overall impact in some time periods, But in some countries, it's had a negative impact. Aid at the country level has thus sometimes worked and sometimes not, and at different periods of time. Some recent research suggests that although aid projects tend to work better in countries with a supportive policy and institution environment, project success seems to vary more within than between countries. Importantly, no rigorous studies studies ever suggested that aid has never worked in any recipient country in any time period. What is more, aid's strongest critics have never themselves published rigorous assessments of aid at the country level. In recent years, growing attention has been focused on the role of NGOs in aid giving. Too little is still known about the wider and longer impact that aid channeled to and through NGOs and CSOs make to development and poverty reduction. To begin to try to address this question, the Norwegian government set up a civil society panel in 2012 
to undertake a pilot study to assess the overall impact in four countries, Malawi, Nepal, Ethiopia, and Vietnam. And I was fortunate enough to be part of the Asian initiative of that study. The panel's assessment is unequivocal. In all four countries, aid channeled to and through CSOs works. It makes a significant contribution to development in a number of different ways, the most important being the combined contribution of different CSOs in the education and health fields. However, even in inhospitable contexts, where states impose severe restrictions on CSOs, they have contributed to poverty reduction in different ways. Interestingly, however, the study argued that the wider and long-term impact of CSOs on development and poverty reduction could be far greater if agencies took a more strategic approach to their work instead of focusing narrowly, as most still do, on individual projects and trying to ensure that these works, not least because of donor pressure to report their impact through this narrow project prism. So against the backdrop of this evidence of AIDS' generally positive impact, what is of particular interest is the large and growing literature which shows that aid giving and the aid relationships, the interaction between donors and recipients, is characterized by a range of problems which taken together seriously undermine the development impact of aid and creating a significant gap between what aid currently achieves and what it could if these problems were, sufficiently, were successfully addressed. Interestingly, while donors today are loath to admit that their aid doesn't work, they're far more ready to acknowledge that the current ways of aid giving are riddled with inefficiencies and that there is an urgent need to address them. In my paper, I look at some of these. I will quickly list them. The first problem concerns the way official aid is allocated and the mismatch between who gets aid and who needs it. Historically, the decisions that the largest donors have made about who to give aid to have always been influenced, as we heard this morning, by their own national and political interests, as well as by development and poverty considerations. But even if you believe poverty should be the driving force for the allocation of aid, difficult, although crucial, questions still remain unanswered. Should aid go to the poorest countries, currently less than half official aid does so, or should it go to the countries where most of the poorest people live? This question has become increasingly important as a number of countries containing large numbers of poor people, such as India and Nigeria, were once categorized as low-income countries, have now been reclassified as middle-income countries. The result being, today, over 80% of the world's poorest people now live in middle-income countries. For some donors, commercial interests have played an important role in determining aid flows. Tied aid tends to increase the costs of aid by between 50 and 30%. Aid volatility and Unpredictability is an issue that the minister made. At the country level, the effect of that is to further reduce aid by between 8 and 20%. Efficiencies also arise from the systemic effect of an increasing number of donors overseeing a growing number of projects, creating an ever more complex web of transactions and parallel management systems, many replicating and duplicating each other. 
Almost 10 years ago, in 1975, as most of you will know, the main donors signed the Paris Declaration. This was rightly seen as an historically important document because in signing it, the donors were implicitly acknowledging that the way they were currently giving the aid was characterized by a succession of practices and processes that were already highly inefficient and becoming increasingly unworkable. The Declaration committed themselves to address issues of harmonization, to uh, align their aid more closely to recipient priorities, to work together to strengthen government systems, in part in order that recipients other than donors would lead in the coordination of the aid efforts. Donors also pledged to increase the total amounts of aid they provided to address estimated funding gaps. The target for the implementation of the declaration was 2010. What happened? Although sudden day donors have made some progress in some areas, in aggregate, they failed to meet all but one of the targets set. Many of them were modest. While in relation to the aid they said they would provide, only half the pledged increases were forthcoming. Whatever the weaknesses and inefficiencies the aid end, whether aid works or not, ultimately depends on what happens at the recipient end. Spurred on in part by the MDGs, one approach increasingly adopted in recent years to make aid work better has been to channel it into in initiatives which link aid inputs to simple, clear, and tangible outcomes that materially and quickly improve the lives of people, the maximum number. The priority given to short-term, tangible, and measurable results has meant paying less attention to using aid to help address long-term problems. It's meant channeling less aid to support more complex initiatives that take longer to achieve their intended results and whose outcomes could be uncertain and more difficult to predict. It has resulted in less attention being paid to addressing the systemic problems which the Paris Declaration drew attention to. In contrast, what has been termed a more transformational approach to aid giving would seek to hold in creative tension the current and understandable desire of donors to use aid funds to help address immediate problems with the use of aid funds to help countries address the different problems which constrain and hold back long-term development. Individual programs would be determined and shaped by understanding how best each donor can contribute to the overall aid effort aimed at addressing both short-term and long-term problems and ensuring that aid giving itself does not add to these problems in a process that increasingly led and coordinated by donors. What is worrying is that evidence from a succession of recent studies is now steadily accumulating, which suggests that aid focused on short-term and visible interventions is not merely resulting in less aid being used transformationally, but that this form of aid giving is adding to recipient systemic problems while holding back long-term poverty reduction. For example, a 20-year-old study of Dutch aid recently published judged that in Africa, by moving away from support to the productive sector, the Dutch contribution to long-term poverty reduction had fallen. A world, recent World Bank study argues that when donors rely on their own systems to deliver aid, the effect is to undermine country recipient systems. Research from the London-based Overseas Development Institute suggests that unless and until recipient countries have acquired development leadership, aid tends to have, I quote, fairly powerful perverse effects 
and in my paper I discuss other studies which highlight other systemic problems. Based in part on these studies, age traditional critics have, joined, have been joined by some of age traditional supporters to argue that the systemic problems caused directly and indirectly by aid and aid donors are so significant that they eclipse all the immediate and tangible benefits that aid brings, so they conclude that on balance aid doesn't work. One example being Angus Deaton's discussion of aid in his recent book, The Great Escape. My own view is that the issues raised by these studies and by what might be termed AIDS new critics are extremely important. However, I think the judgment that aid doesn't work is premature. There are three reasons for this. Firstly, the judgments made are not based on an overall and rigorous assessment of all aid. As with earlier debates on whether aid works, this new wave of criticism is based on partial and poor data, stating that countries will always be better off without aid remains what it has always been, an unproven assertion. Secondly, to make too sharp a distinction between short-term, narrowly focused and transformational aid can be misleading because some short-term aid, such as expanding school places for girls, can importantly play an important role in long-term transformational change. Thirdly, while some donors may well be contributing to aid systemic problems, and some may have undermined recipient country ownership, there is a growing awareness of these shortcomings as well as more knowledge about how donors can change current practice to give more priority to transformational aid in order to make it work better overall. Indeed, proposals for working in new and different raids are not, being, not only being put forward for mapping out specific approaches, but there's evidence that a number of key donors are adopting approaches more in line with transformational aid. There is evidence of significant development successes occurring because, notwithstanding the lurch towards the short term, donors have by no means abandoned a long-term approach, and some are participating in governments in initiatives that blend service delivery and capacity support. Does foreign aid then really work? Summing up, on balance, the vast majority of aid projects work in the sense of achieving their near-term objectives, and though the evidence is far less robust, aid has often made a contribution, a positive contribution to poverty reduction and contributed broader development goals, though there continue to be exceptions. Against often far too high expectations of what aid might achieve, which is an important factor, much aid has had a positive impact, though sustaining its benefits has proved challenging. However, especially when aid is focused overwhelmingly on activities aimed at achieving short-term successes, it can contribute to, perpetuate, and even risks causing structural and systemic problems to which far greater attention needs to be given. As a result, aid has not worked nearly as well as it could. Indeed, when viewed alongside all these different weaknesses, the fact that aid has broadly worked is, in my view, even more of an achievement than is widely recognized. <laughs> now, in my paper, I talk about suggestions for how we might address some of these problems and move aid more towards addressing some of the systemic problems. One of those is for aid donors to work more closely together, a key factor in the Paris Declaration, which wasn't mentioned in the Minister's speech today, but I think it's important. One of the reasons why donors have been reluctant 
to work more closely together is because they feel they have a problem in communicating what their aid does to the public. If donors are to radically work more closely together, as I've argued they must, they need to rethink the way they communicate with the wider public on the role and purpose of aid and to help build up the capacity for recipients to make a more proactive role in helping to shape programmes. They need to explain why some aid needs to be channelled to initiatives whose outcomes might take time to emerge and might even be uncertain. They need to develop and make use of different theories of change models to help them report on the value and importance and provide evidence of how to achieve intermediate outcomes to which both they and other donors are contributing in order to assess and explain the contribution that ETA is making to both immediate poverty reduction and to long-term development processes. In conclusion, whether we like it or not, foreign aid is not going to disappear soon. The political and moral drivers that have created and preserved the official aid system and the compassion and sense of injustice which drive individuals to support NGO and CSO aid projects and programs mean that aid as a form of helping will be with us for many years, possibly many decades to come. Against this backdrop, the most fundamental question we need to try to answer is not whether aid works, but how it can be made to work better from a development perspective. There are probably too many suggestions out there for how to do so, not enough analysis on why those suggestions fail to materialise. We need to look beyond the technical to the political realm. To reduce the gap that seems to have widened considerably in recent years between what aid does and what it could do. As I've suggested, this in turn requires us to acknowledge far more explicitly and seek to understand far better than we do the structural and systemic problems that aid contributes to or risk causing. Paradoxically, aid is likely to work better if less attention is given to trying to answer the immediate question of whether my aid works and if more attention is focused on trying to understand the contribution that all aid can best make to a recipient's overall development and the inevitable tensions that will continue to arise when trying to address both short-term and long-term needs. Paradoxically, too, the greater the contribution that aid makes to help to strengthen and accelerate a recipient-led and sustainable development path, the less easy it will be to assess the precise contribution that aid has made to this process. My final comment is this. A greater understanding of whether aid works and new insights into how aid could work better are likely to be gained when institutions and scholars in recipient countries are able as a matter of course to undertake in-depth analyses of the impact of aid and the workings of aid and when donors are more ready than many are at present today to listen to the challenging and perhaps uncomfortable assessments that they might make. Thank you. All right, thank you, Roger, for that short of course and for almost keeping to a time limit. Now, we are a sweet question. I'm sure in the parallel sessions we'll have a lot more time for questions, but uh, we'll take a few.
here, and uh, we have a few microphones. Uh, Melissa Wells, Conference for Save Children. Uh, thank you for that stimulating uh, discussion. Uh, knowing what you do about if aid works, if you had a budget of, say, five billion, what would you do with it? <laughs> uh, Roger, we'll take a few questions. <laughs> Hi, Elizabeth Pryor from DFAT. Thank you, Roger, for your presentation. My question is just um, about what are some of the ways that donors can improve the impact of CSOs or NGOs by moving away from focusing narrowly on projects and moving towards um, focusing on the strategic role of CSOs? We not PhD student from Melbourne University focusing on the mainstream uh, adaptation into development aid project. I observe uh, your note that when donors use donor systems for the development aid, there is a high tendency of failure. And then when we observe in real practice and what is going on, donors, multilateral development banks, bilateral agencies, are still using their own systems in order to ensure that with institutional capacity in developing countries will do the right things based on the system or based on the international practices. So I'm sort of trying to challenge the findings that we cannot just let the recipient government to go alone. We need to walk them in the system so that they can learn how to do things according to donors' uh, uh, system of procedures so that they can learn in process because they do and they need capacity. All right, I think we've got three pretty good questions there. All right, first one. Gosh, I'd love to have five million. Five billion, was it five billion? Anyway, I'd like to have a lot of money to be able to do. Um, I think one of the priorities which has been uh, not sufficiently emphasized is that the Paris Declaration talks not only about donors falling in line with recipient-led development programs, but that recipients should be the coordinators of aid. Now, I think that far more effort and far more aid money should go into a really serious attempt at building capacities within recipient countries. And one of those capacities, which I would have mentioned if I had time in my paper, but Stephen cut me off, <laughs> is in relation to building think tanks in recipient countries to enable them to think through the ways in which aid could make a more substantial medium and long-term difference. We know about the short term, it's, the, it's the, the long term that we need. Each recipient country is different. The issues are complex. We're not going to get the answers by flying in political economists for quick two-week missions to odd recipient countries and to provide donors with the answer. We need to build up capacities to understand where the room for manoeuvre is in particular recipient countries and to work on those issues. Second thing that I think that I would look at is this issue that I raised about most of the poorest now living in middle-income countries. To my knowledge... Donors still approach poverty alleviation and the money they give in low-income countries and in middle-income countries in the same way. 
But one of the key differences in middle-income countries is that they tend to have the resources and technical skills, but they distribute them in, in a way that is not favourable to poor and marginalised people. Indeed, they don't involve the poor and marginalised people directly uh, in those. So I think that uh, money also needs to be spent on thinking through, and I'm not saying it's easy, how you deal with extreme poverty in a country like India. Uh, I was very distressed the British government decided that they're going to pull out of India. There are more, more of the poorest... There are more very poor people living in India than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. And DFID chose to uh, withdraw from uh, India. I think it was a mistake. Second question was uh, uh, CSOs. I think that one of the, the ways that that could be approached is to focus less on reporting requirements project by project and providing block grants to the northern NGOs who themselves can provide block grants to the uh, uh, local uh, to, to, the, to the local NGOs to help build capacity and to uh, try and grapple with some of the systemic issues and to encourage, and I'm sure that the financiers in the room can work out, how to encourage NGOs to talk to each other. They're still very silo approached. I've worked, I've, I manage the international department of one of the largest British NGOs and I know the way that uh, NGOs tend to think. But I think, I think just to flag up and to, to see the importance, that, that there, there is a huge potential for a wider strategic uh, in, involvement of, of CSOs. And uh, as I indicated, in Vietnam, with a very harsh environment, some amazing things that NGOs have been doing. Uh, the thing about donor systems is really, really important. Uh, the project implementation units, the numbers of those, have not dropped in terms of the targets that have been set in the, in the Paris Declaration. Uh, it's understandable why. Uh, we talk about donors giving aid to recipient countries. What they like to do is actually to hold on to the aid as long as possible and to control it. And some of the studies that I was talking about indicate that one of the uh, uh, drawbacks of working those systems is that donors are pulling in or continuing to pull in resources and skills to manage their projects and drawing people away from ministries. So having that systemic adverse effect, which uh, I think the current uh, uh, debate needs to focus on far more than it has. All right. Well, look, it is um, 11 o'clock, and um, given people in the middle of chance now. So I think I'm sorry I'm going to pull the session to a halt. Uh, we're going to break for coffee. Uh, please try and come back within 20 minutes, not to this lecture theatre, but to the Acton and uh, Brenda Bella uh, lecture theatre. And uh, please join with me in thanking Roger. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media.